Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining this next episode of the DIFF podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Nevers, who is managing React documentation uh, on the Meta team. And But I think it's best that Rachel introduce herself. So uh, please, if you can, share a few notes about your uh, journey here and how you got to uh, work with React team. Well, it's great to be talking with you today, Dimitri. Um, how did I end up working with the React team at Meta? Well, it's a long story, but I was I was curious to learn more about React. I actually didn't know anything about React. Well, short of it was the most popular UI library on the on the JavaScript market before I joined uh, before I joined the team. I joined specifically because I love teaching people. And I wanted to take this opportunity to learn something amazing and teach an entire community. Uh, we get something like 2.2 million people visiting the React documentation every month from around the world. That's a huge audience of engineers and people learning and getting, getting started in web development and programming for the first time. And I thought it was a, an awesome opportunity to be a part of that learning journey for so many people. Yeah, no, that that's amazing. Especially as you said, the community. It's I, I'm amazed how fast it's been growing and how welcoming the community is and um, high diversity is from uh, different backgrounds. I myself started in the medical uh, field and now I'm fully on you know web development and the back de- back end development. So yeah, it's it's very exciting to see the community flourish in the especially past couple of years. And we're glad to have you here at Meta to help that uh, happen. But I know I know that you started with React Native initially. Uh, can you speak to that experience a little bit? So what happened was when I approached the, when I approached this opportunity, the React Native documentation site really needed a bit of love. The site had been largely growing organically from community contributions over many years, and hadn't seen like a major investment since that original spinning it up um, years back. So I came in and I had to figure out what needed doing. And it was interesting because oftentimes the thing that you think will solve the problem or make things better isn't the thing that people actually want. Um, For instance, originally when I came in, the thinking was that people were spending a lot of time on certain pages. So that meant that those pages, you know, should be the primary targets of revamps and overhauls. But I did a little bit of user interviewing uh, from back in my day as a, a user experience designer. I was used to going out and talking to people. So I reached out to the React Native community because I'm new to this community. And I was surprised to find out that React Native, the community, is full of mobile developers for iOS and Android. And I've never met any of these people before because I, you know, JavaScript and, and, and Flash and web development all the way. And so I was meeting people who are, you know, they identify as like, I'm an Android developer. Uh, what are you doing calling this native development? I program in Kotlin. And it was very interesting to get to know this entire new community of developers and programmers from all over the world. And I found them very, very cheerful, helpful, um, ready to make React Native kick butt. And learned a lot of interesting things from just going out, asking questions, and figuring out um, a couple of hypotheses. Like, 
for instance, at that time, the React Native site basically said, so you've heard of React, right? Well, React Native is like React for your phone. And that was cool. But uh, ran a survey after talking and meeting all these people, ran a survey on the React Native site to be like, how many people are coming here who don't have a background on the web? Maybe they've you know, never seen React before. A lot of the people I interviewed, they said, yeah, I never had to use React before I took this job and we were using React Native. Before I could use React Native, I had to go to the React website. This is something like 75% of the people who use the React Native documentation site, they come in from a strictly mobile background. So this is their first tango when it comes to React and JavaScript. And the documentation was totally not written for people who are unfamiliar to this territory. So the first step wasn't actually to spend time on the high traffic pages or, you know, getting started or anything like that. It was actually just to change the language, to explain some things, to instead of just saying, yeah, I'm sure you know React, we actually, like, I made a little onboarding series of docs that explain what React is. Here's the fundamentals. If you want to learn more, go check out these docs. And, you know, trying to make that a less, a less abrupt learning curve for people who are uh, just new to the React Native community. So that was what I was first tasked with, you know, come in and 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 make this site better. And I also had to install quite a bit of metrics to make sure that I could conclusively show that the efforts we were putting in were paying off. Not every time you update a piece of documentation uh, benefits people. Docs are, you know, prose is tricky. You can You can give people a flood of words with very little meaning in it. And we needed to make sure that the changes we were making were actually having a positive impact on the React Native community. But we were very lucky. And uh, well, I wouldn't say lucky. We did good planning and we did good execution. And the React Native community ended up with a much better resource, which really helped a lot of folks. Um, it makes me very, very happy to see the, the documentation on, on such a good trajectory. I'm so glad to hear that, I'm, I'm especially that I feel like it's it's a very core of software engineering in general, or any tech for that matter, or actually just working with people is what you might be asked for is very different from what people actually need. And right. getting to the bottom of it is so important. And that highlights how it's, sometimes you can hear the documentations and afterthought. I'm a strong believer, and I'm I'm so glad to see that. I am I'm confident you share the same opinion. Documentation is actually it's very core of a successful project, successful product of any kind. Because this is where people go to learn it, to, to learn advanced techniques, apart from basics. Right. Um, this is where frequent, frequently asked questions hopefully reside. So yeah, it's exciting to see. And I've, uh, I've been, by the way, amazed how well the, webs the React Native website have been evolving in the past couple of years. They have now a showcase page and the showcase highlights articles written by other companies. And the thing you just mentioned that more often it's mobile developers who come in and try to use React Native. And that's exactly what those articles at companies, companies like Tableau showed uh, in the post that they made. So it's great that you've been ahead of the curve really and just seeing that uh, this is what people really want. This is what helps them to grow. It's easy to be ahead of the curve when you, you know, you talk to your community members and your users. I mean, it's it's easy for you and I to to sit in a room and think, you know, what do they want? And we can come up with all kinds of ideas, but in the end, 
But what really matters is that you go out there and you form that connection with real people using what you're building and really understand what they need and what they're they're looking for. Sometimes you might have a better idea. You might hear like, I want faster horses and you might have an idea for a motorcycle, but uh, you won't know what people need or what their problems are unless you talk to them first. True. If it's not open source, if it's not really open uh, to the members of the community that can contribute. But uh, one thing I'd like to hear more about, you mentioned metrics. Um, metrics, I mean, it's genuinely it's a complicated thing. Uh, can you give an example what kind of metrics? I know that you, uh, I've seen the React Native really evolved in terms of accessibility in the, uh, especially around the, I mean, obviously around documentation. Uh, can you talk about that and maybe some metrics that was involved and how you saw the progress and the changes that the team made in that regard? Well, one of the first things I did when I was tasked with the React Native documentation turnaround was I installed metrics. I actually formed a plan. Uh, I think I, I surprised uh, I surprised some folks on the React Native team. They were like, oh, yeah, this is this is an interesting deliverable uh, metrics in a plan. I was like, of course, you're going to need metrics. How will you know if I'm doing anything useful? I mean, it'd be very easy for me to write a book about React Native and just tell you that that, that has solved the problems. But how do we know that we're solving user problems? So one of the first things that I did was I installed um, thumbs up and thumbs down page ranking on every page. I also ran a community survey to gauge people's overall, like, you know, uh, how useful they were finding the documentation and ran it again a year later after we'd launched. But those thumbs up, thumbs down metrics gave like a basal score for the entire site, how much people, you know, were getting out of it, uh, their sentiment. And this is a hazy metric. It's just better than, you know, going off what people are saying on Twitter because React and React Native are very popular. So people always want to say nice things to us. You know, oh, you really made this community so great. I owe so much of my, you know, my career to, you know, they, they don't want to tell you, you know, your API references are kind of out of date. Although I give major credit to the people in the React Native community who were forthright in user interviews with me about that. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate it when we can be honest about our needs with each other. And so these little metrics that I installed in the first place, they revealed a, a rather low and sad overall approval rating, if you will, for the docs on average. Um, I think it was something like 50-something percent of people who clicked a thumbs up or thumbs down clicked the thumbs down. So that wasn't great. Uh, but then after the push, you know, added that new on-ramp of content, updated all the, the content to refer to, you know, proper inclusive uh, terminology, mobile developers, you know, iOS developers, Android developers, created little tabs that would show and hide information accordingly, ran, um, a uh, lovely API documentation drive with the community to ensure that the API references are updated. By the way, your, if your API references are out of date, that right there is like a major problem that we can dive into in a minute. But doing all these things uh, actually majorly lifted that score from the 50s, you know, like only like maybe 50% of people giving it the thumbs up, uh, bumped it up to like 88%. It was a really beautiful, uh, beautiful improvement to see across the board and quantify. 
of course, you know, we have different ways of quantifying it now. We've got a more exact surveys, you know, sampling 1% of the population. So we don't have to run uh, huge annual community surveys like, like we used to. Uh, but this was really good for figuring out where the baseline needed to be and getting there. I mean, you have to start somewhere. I, I always go for better is better than nothing. Uh, and uh, I feel like I, I'm excited to hear that the team was open to these changes, open to metrics, open to hearing the community, getting their feedback, and again, ultimately improving the project, making it grow. Um, apart from the adoption, not just people using it, but contributing back. Because uh, participating in a survey like that is a contribution. It's not any less of a contribution than making a code change. And that's what I always uh, remind people, especially first-time contributors, that anything, like whatever you do matters, whether it's the translation, whether it's documentation help, test cases, fixing the failing test, or a code change. All of that is equally important. That's what makes the project you know, leap, the, the whole software development life cycle. I'm, it's, it's fascinating to hear you saying that because I always... Uh, hear about the the community in React mostly secondhand because I'm not participating in it as actively as I would love to. It, it, yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear that. It's a huge community. I absolutely love the React Native team, um, both here at Meta and out in the field in the community. Uh, this has been one of the the nicest, most inviting open source teams I've ever worked with, and. The, the team just cares so dang much about the community. They're always asking, like, how can we do better by the community? I've, I've appreciated the work that Luna Wei has been doing. Um, it, she's a, a member of the React Native team who's been really working on our community, uh, our community initiatives to make sure that we're, you know, syncing, um, Oh my gosh, syncing releases with the community that we're getting great architectural documentation out that used to just live internally. She's been a wonderful partner and just one of the, the many great people that we've got. Um, I could list them all, but it would take the rest of this podcast. Um, Nicola Corti, uh, also excellent person from the, the Android community who's joined the team recently, also been active in those efforts. I could keep going. But I, I'm going to hold it, hold it there. But you should definitely keep an eye on those too. Oh yeah, I, and I'm glad to see that when you say uh, community in React, you don't just mean again those who work at Meta, it's people who are outside of the company, because that will basically make the project successful uh, for the community and for us as one of the, its users, right? Uh, but when we, we talked about React Native quite a bit, but obviously you are involved with just React ecosystem in general. Can you talk a bit about that, what you're currently involved in? And I'm excited to hear about the community aspect of working with React. You know, it's interesting. Um, in this particular role where I am involved on the documentation for React, React Native, and Relay, and oversee it and put together the, the guidelines and the, the roadmaps for them, I get a, a really interesting bird's eye view of all of the communities that surround the React platform, as it were. Uh, this, this is a, a view I'm not sure that I could have gotten in any other way because the people who use these different, uh, these, these different open source libraries, they make up such completely different uh, 
segments of the user base, like people who use Relay, they tend to work with you know large companies that that uh, have big data uh, data issues to to solve. People who work with React Native tend to come from mobile development backgrounds, and of course, React is the big dog in the room, uh, which currently is like the JavaScript user interface library of choice today. Although I think jQuery still outcompetes it for most JavaScript code on the internet. But uh, it, the React community itself is a whole nother story. It's surprisingly, like this, React didn't really have any, you know, developer advocates or, you know, marketing budget or anything like that. It completely sprang forth uh, from a, a, a little skunkworks project at Meta, and then the community got hold of it and ran with it. And that goes out to you know people teaching React because you know it came out on the scene, and there were a lot of alternatives at the time, and still are. You know, Vue is another uh, JavaScript user interface library that you could use if you wanted, um, with a similar story completely, you know, sprang forth from a community endeavor. Um, you know, React does have a corporate sponsor in that, you know, it, it's, uh, it's got meta backing it, but it doesn't have like a fleet of developer advocates building features or, you know, um, uh, you know, holding meetups around the world to to teach the world how to think and react. The community does all of that. All we can do is provide them with the right educational materials to teach them how to do, you know, how to think and react correctly and make sure that our second source of truth, the documentation, is up to date and reflects the current state of the library. But for the most part, it's the React community that has spurred React uh, on, on this long and and amazing trip to where it is today i mean that that's i believe that's the end goal for uh, the best goal you can achieve with a project we at meta developer advocacy team uh, we would never approach a project and say let's hire a ton of developer advocates to go to conferences to represent you no what we are coming with uh, our basic proposal always uh, let us help you uh, to empower you as developers and highlight the amazing work that you all do. And there is nothing better of developer advocacy that it's done by the community itself, by developers themselves. Uh, when I go to a conference as a, an attendee, the talks I usually attend are use cases, like real examples from the field. And that's what I'm excited to hear from people who use React. And I'm also glad that you mentioned Vue as one of the alternatives. Just in general, I'm glad to see the community trying to lift up the entire UI framework uh, libraries um, ecosystem, not just to push down others to bring up you know, React or bring up Vue. We're all trying to go up together to improve the ecosystem in general, to make it more accessible, more welcoming. And I'm glad that React is part of this movement, uh, bringing everyone up uh, and make it more open. Agreed. Um, I think React has never tried to to think that it's better than. I mean, React isn't a person, so I should stop talking about it. We like to anthropomorphize uh, <laughs> ideas and archetypes, but I think I think at no point has the React team tried to put on airs or felt that uh, React is better than other solutions. It's just the solution that happened to work for Meta, 
And it's also happened to work for a lot of other um, projects, businesses, and engineers. And it's a solid bet. It's a it's a solid bet if you're getting into web development and you're thinking, hmm, which one of these things should I invest my skills in? You're probably going to have to work with React at some point in your career, so you can't go wrong with starting there. And this has created a cycle where people teach React, so people use React in their new projects. So people teach React, so people use React to build their new business. And you can see how it just keeps going. Um, it would be really interesting in five years, 10 years, I think, to look back and see, like, is React still the most important thing? Or did Svelte come in and overtake it? Or did everything on the web switch over to to um, to WASM, uh, to, to WebAssembly? Uh, I'll be really interested to see what happens. Um, luckily, I'm thinking I'll be around for that. So that'll be cool. Yeah, that, that, that's great. I uh, I remember years ago, I when I just started looking at the front end, it was amazing to me to see how many different frameworks and libraries are out there for uh, front end development. And it's not sometimes people feel overwhelmed. Oh my, I have to know all of them. Not really. It's the the practices, the principles that all of those frameworks and libraries carry are just basically the same. You're trying to improve user experience, make it easier for developers and for the customer for end users. Whatever tool works best is what you have to choose. If it's React, then it's React. If it's something else, then it's something else. And uh, I hope that community helps to build that. And you mentioned when it comes to learning React, I know that you've been involved with this relaunch, or like launch of a new documentation site for React uh, that I feel like focused on learning as the very first thing that people start with. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, so Excellent uh, segue here. Um, the new React site, well, how do I put this? Uh, my next stop after React Native, I, I threw a little, little conference at the start of the pandemic called Women of React Conf, so it wasn't my immediate next stop. But my next stop after React Native was to take on revamping React's documentation, applying the, the same lessons and things that we learned from React Native to React stocks. And this was a lot of fun. Um, you know, as always, set up the metrics before coming in, lots of community surveys, getting to meet the React community, which, you know, coming from a web background, it kind of was like my old stomping grounds. And spearheaded this uh, new approach for documentation, which you can see at beta.reactjs.org. It's in beta still because we haven't completely finished the API documentation and there's just a little bit more guides to write. But this is an entirely reworked version of the documentation. Um, I partnered with Dan Abramov to take what was in React Core team's uh, in institutional knowledge, as, as you might hear this called, uh, everything that was locked inside the heads of, you know, Sebastian Mark Boge and Andrew Clark, and work to translate this into a fully interactive learning path and curriculum for anyone who wants to go from, you know, good to great with React. And we're hoping that this should make it a lot easier for people to have access to a really stellar React uh, React education as well as help iron out any any uh, misconceptions about JavaScript that you might have. So something that showed up a lot in user research is that, you know, people don't spend three years getting great at JavaScript before they learn React, which by the way, if you're thinking, what, what should I invest my time in? 
don't learn all the frameworks. Just learn JavaScript really, really well. Yeah. If you learn your your base programming language really, really well, everything else, it's just like, you know, a different configuration of the same principles. Um, so we made sure that in different places in the documentation where people were tripped up by common misconceptions, uh, we made sure to call it out with these things called deep dives and gotchas, uh, got interactive examples everywhere. It It's really cool. And yes, if you think some of that artwork looks familiar, I did draw the illustrations that you see before you. Great. I uh, I actually seen a couple of your animations and uh, visuals. It, it's always it's always fascinating to me how well. I, mean, I I'm so bad with drawing. I yeah I'm awful with that. And for me, it's almost like magic. A lot more complex than any JavaScript or any React or any anything that comes with web development. The web animation and drawing things and creating that uh, it's fascinating. Can you actually tell us a little bit about that too? About your uh, I wouldn't even say hobby. You like way beyond professional level for me uh, as an outsider? Uh, well, back in the day, I used to be an award-winning cartoonist for teenage girls, but I don't like to flash it around too much because mm. when I first started my career in tech, uh, even though I'd been writing PHP and running my own database servers, when I interviewed, all people could see was the artwork. So they were like, this person should be in Photoshop. I didn't know there was such a big difference in potential compensation in the kind of work between developer and designer in that era. So because of my art, I ended up getting tricked into a web design career. And it took many years before I found myself back in front-end development, where I fell in love with CSS. And specifically, when I saw the specification for CSS animations and transitions, I suddenly was inspired to bring back all of my cartooning skills and create interactive uh, animated music videos with CSS3 and HTML5 audio. And that ended up leading me to speak around the world at conferences and share these nifty little tricks, which all came because I was reading API documentation late one night. Personally, I, I just... I hate with the bottom of my heart when people put some someone in a box you know, rather than actually seeing how they can bring that those skills over and make whatever they want to work on better. Uh, probably one of the best engineers I've seen, they come from anthropology, from biology, from uh, you know uh, some theater arts. It's, it's fascinating to see what people can bring to the table. And that's what I love about open source in general. And I presume it's one of your favorite things about open source as well, the community aspect of it. Or what, what excites you? It's actually a very good question for you, really. And what excites you the most about open source? Is it actually the community or some aspects of the community? What, what are you uh, thriving towards with React and you know, on a personal level too? I think what I love about open source is that Truly, anybody can have the opportunity to build anything that they want. This could be both good and bad. I, I, there are many different kinds of communities in open source. I, I took off with Mozilla, for instance. I've contributed to MDN. I've spoken at Mozilla DevFest. Uh, really big fan of all the work that the Mozillians do with Firefox, etc. I think I even contributed to a little bit to, uh, to some of the uh, animation tooling back in the day 
go check out devtoolschallenger.com. But the, I love the vibe of the Mozilla open source crew. It was very inclusive. It was very diverse um, people really working to build a web that everyone could build for and with. And that was awesome. I mean, Not all parts of open source are beautiful, though. There are parts of open source that are burnout inducing. This is something that you really have to be careful with in highly popular uh, communities like React and React Native. Uh, A lot of people who maintain third-party libraries that are used by many people around the world, there's this uh, maintainer fatigue that you can run into where so many people need you and they have feature requests and they want you all the time, but you're just one person. You're just one maintainer. If you're not good at setting boundaries, you know, the open source ecosystem can be a dangerous place. So I always try to advise people to get good at boundaries when they get into the community, uh, because if you find yourself in a position, lovely position of being very popular, you can also find that you might get very tired very soon. But generally, I've I've been a big fan of open source because it was the more it was the the place where I felt like I could do the most, and you know I was able to write useful useful learning materials for people. I was able to go contribute to standards on the W three C as an invited expert. It, it's lovely uh, being able to see your work impact so many people, and just really touches my heart. Communities can also be um, a dangerous thing because they tend to resemble the people that founded them. You'll notice that different uh, programming communities, even in different locations, have different vibes, and maybe some of them are more inclusive or less inclusive. And not just inclusive when we're talking about race and gender, but also like level of knowledge. Uh, There are some programming language communities, and I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, if you're anything less than a staff engineer, you're you're not worth anyone's time. Um, That is something that can be very challenging. I don't think that there's anything particularly special about the open source community because it contains multitudes. And each of these communities inside the open source space has its own vibe. Some of those vibes are better than others. But I think the nice thing is when in open source, you'll find that most of the times people have the power to determine the shape of the community themselves. It's not sponsored. It's not commercially being wrangled. um, It's it's not being herded or controlled by commercial interests. You know, there, there are, you know, when you use a product and, they, they want to keep the community growing the way they see fit. You're, you're going to go to their conferences. You're going to enjoy their training sessions. You're not going to have like the flourishing of different communities, like learning communities, different teaching materials, different Slack channels. You're going to find your own people a lot faster uh, in open source than you will in closed source spaces. Totally true. I'm, so grateful that I can actually work on open source as part of my job. But as you said to the uh, previous point about the expectations people sometimes have for those who work on open source in general, uh, they sometimes come with demands on fix this bug, fix this issue, fix this security flaw. And those requests come from large organizations. 
I, and uh, you know, it's been not I wouldn't say exciting. It's been eye opening for so many to see latest news about many open source libraries or projects that either been sunsetted or archived. Uh, people stop maintaining them. So I'm, I'm glad that the that gap, that the area between closed source and open source, I feel like people have now more understanding of what it takes. And we're trying to go away from this burnout that you mentioned. I'm glad that people are start, start, starting to say no. Uh, that's an important skill, whether it's open source work or just day-to-day work. We have to learn to say no. Otherwise, it's so easy to burn out, especially uh, during the pandem- pandemic. Some people are staying at home or work at home. I'm glad that you mentioned some conferences uh, that uh, you've been a part of uh, organizing that happened from you know, remotely, basically. And I feel like it actually also opens doors for people who attend and speak at them, being to wherever they are. Because I know some conferences uh, in the past where it was in person, uh, there would be you know issues with traveling. It wasn't as open. Now with virtual, while we are apart, I still feel a bit more connected. And I'm glad you've been part of those kind of events as well. Yeah. With Women of React Conf, uh, there were attendees. That was like back in 2020. Uh, yeah. So wow. far away. The longest year. Uh, there were attendees who were so excited that they were able to come because they they wanted to come to a React conference for the longest time, but, you know, stay-at-home moms or out in rural countries, not able to, to, to you know, like buy a plane ticket to Silicon Valley to go to a conference. But people were so happy they were able to tune in for that. It just got such great feedback that when we did React Conf in 20, uh, 2021, in December, you can watch it all on YouTube. We went ahead and did the online version again and tried to make it as, uh, you know, we ran it twice, once in uh, the time zones for the West Coast, and then again at time zones for the other side of the world. So I love how having events online can just allow you to be everywhere with everyone all the time. I love that too. I, I, I kind of miss the hallway track, as they would call it, where you can see people in person and just have that networking feel to it, chatting. But I also like the fact that uh, with virtual, I can do it on my own time sometimes when it's now recording is a must for most events. Uh, yeah. For me, as you mentioned, you know, flying to San Francisco, uh, to staying in a hotel there, sometimes you have to pay, I mean, most of the time people have to pay for themselves. Uh, that that would be just, that was so difficult. Now we actually share learnings and that's what the conference are all about. At least the conferences for especially like tech not the you know, the regular summits or just the, you know, the, the expos. So I think that's one of the benefits of it. And I'm glad that you mentioned it was for different time zones because uh, I currently live in the US. I lived in Canada, but I'm originally from Europe, from Russia. And so it, the, when it's all so much North America-centric, you kind of feel left out. And the world is you know, it's a global place. The global community, React is a global community. So it's, ama- again, it's amazing to see. I'm very grateful that. React uh, ecosystem is thinking about that. Absolutely. I mean, another thing about communities and events specifically is uh, in order to encourage a diverse and inclusive space, you also have to set some standards for how people treat each other. When you have people coming from all over the world in one place, um, usually it's good to have some codes of conduct, some guidelines, uh, whether they're in one place 
physically or just coming together on your Slack or your Discord. For Women of React, we had an entire mod squad that, you know, made sure that everybody was keeping it peaceful and abiding by the guidelines, the code of conduct that we'd written up. And we brought the that same um, leadership. Uh, let's see. Oh, my gosh. I'm. It is that time of night that I am blanking on my mod squad leader's name, Aisha Blake. We'll, yes. we'll add them to the show notes. Aisha Blake came back uh, from Women of React Conf to head up the moderation squad for React Conf 2021, uh, which was great. You know, it's always good to just just having moderators there is often enough to make sure that people are treating each other respectfully and being mindful. Sometimes you don't realize when you're you're saying something, and maybe maybe for the person on the other side of the table, that's just not okay where they come from. Um, you know, like making a comment about that. It's just not cool. And it's always nice to have somebody there to be like, hey, maybe mm, that's not not so cool. Don't, don't, uh, you know, lay off the sauce. And I really appreciate that at events. I appreciate it when other people do it for me. Um, I am a, I'm an American and, you know, <laughs> I, I travel the world and not every place that I go is... Um, going to have the same the same cultural um, communication style, the same interaction uh, what might be appropriate in in one place might not be might not be appropriate in the other. but investing in moderation in these get-togethers um, you know having somebody there to uphold the code of conduct, make sure that people are acting above board and intervene if anything goes too far. it makes such a huge difference. Whether it's a an industry event or something like XOXO Fest, which is a a little independent festival that happens in Portland, um, and they also do major investments because you got so many people there um, to make sure that everyone is treating each other really well. So I like to say that great community interactions are designed, and. That's interesting because while a big company might be able to just, you know, set up an industry event and, and laden it with all the policies and, and things like that, for a community to come together and, you know, decide on a code of conduct and set up moderation and to take turns and volunteer is something really special. It's, it's wonderful to see, you know, individual community members coming together to make that safe space for everyone. I'm so glad to see that code of conduct in the, again, last couple of years from what I've seen has be, have become a must. Like when we open source something at Meta, uh, there are very few files that we, requ we require projects to have. It's obviously README, it's a contributor's guide. So we want people to know how to contribute, contribute. And of course, not any less important is code of conduct. And we don't treat it as just, you know, terms of agreement what we that we agree to when we install an app of some sort right we actually and it's an important thing that you mentioned moderators they have to enforce it these things things have to be enforced otherwise it's just you know it's just a label like like uh greenwashing i think is a term sometimes people would mark something organic when it's actually not organic and it's that doesn't make any difference for that label but it's just a label to make feel people feel better here with code of conduct, it's again it's essential to enforce it. And you said one important point, like for someone who's coming from 
direction from Russia. For me, it was an important little lesson um, to learn is it's not what you mean. Some people say it sometimes. It, I didn't mean that in a bad way, but it's not really what you mean. It's how people perceive it, how people take it. And that's what you have to be conscious of. And that's a lesson for, for many people from many cultures, really. And as soon as they are open to learning and being better, I think that's the game that will make it more welcoming and safe space, space for everyone. Yeah, there are a lot of humans on this planet and we got to get along. And yeah. this is, you know, watching people working hard to uphold, uh, you know, uphold a standard of conduct and behavior to make a place where we can all come together. It gives me hope for the whole planet. Like maybe we can all do this uh, one day. I know, I know individuals can do it. So, you know, there's only what, 7 billion of us. I've got hope uh, that that one day maybe um, maybe this is the future of 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 humanity coming together and interacting with one another. But one thing I wanted to also mention is, um, and maybe you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dimitri, but doesn't this standard issue meta code of conduct also include like an email address that you can you know list uh, lodge uh, code of conduct violations at? I believe there there is. I, I would that currently have on our website, on the open source, that uh, facebook.com, there is a whole page for code of conduct. And yes, people can file complaints there, email us directly, or they go, I, ideally, and that's my hope in the, in the long run, is that uh, individual projects uh, address those complaints and it's not taken lightly and doesn't just push under the rug. We always would address any complaint with seriousness. So if there is anything concerning this point definitely reach out go to our website opensource.facebook.com and you'll find all the contact information you might have or you know go on twitter when they just dm us directly but uh, email i think keeps people you know anonymous and safe that may be the better place whatever you choose uh we are open to any criticism any feedback any complaints anything like that so uh you know to make it better we have to know what the problem resides uh, that's, I think, it's the way to speak up and tell tell about an issue. And it's so great that we have that channel of communication uh, right there alongside our code of conduct for our open source projects. One more thing I would like to just hear about before we start wrapping up the show. Uh, the, we talked about React in the community quite a bit. I, I was, to me, as an outsider to the community, really, to see the work groups that were created not a while ago for the latest release of React. It's been, I don't know, game-changing. And I, I just love to hear a few words about that. Why was it created in the first place? And how is it changing and shaping the future of React? Oh, my gosh. I don't know that I'm the right person to be talking about this. Maybe you should You're talk part to of the community. Hanlon. Of course. But as part of, you know, member of the community, you know, uh, I would love to hear that. Uh, just a few words about it. Well, the React team wanted to get closer with the people who are actually working with React. Now, many different ideas, you know, previously when the React team had an idea or, you know, Sebastian Markboge had one, you'd have to like be watching the React repo for some gists or some commentary. And unless you knew where to watch, you might not be aware of the different features that we were thinking about or the different things that might be coming your way. Um, You'd probably only hear about them at a big conference talk. Unfortunately, big conference talks are like a huge promise to the community. 
that something is coming or being worked on. And we're not always ready to have those conversations about new upcoming features. What if we want to see if some people try out something and it works for them or it doesn't? Like we try things out at Meta first, but Meta's use case is not the community's use case. So there's always this period between, well, we've proven it works internally. Now let's see how it works externally. And there was a gap there. So the work groups, working group, React 18 working group, was this tiny little experimental project that we did where we got some people from the community from various different segments, different, you know, uh, trainers. We had uh, educators. We had people representing um, a couple of very large consumers of React, as well as some people who were, you know, doing agency work. We tried to collect a a very diverse segmentation of the React community, although it's you can never quite have enough. We mm-hmm. uh, we didn't want to have it become a wall of noise. We wanted to make sure that it was focused just on providing feedback about React 18 features. And this way, we were able to have conversations directly with the community, with big uh, working group calls. We were able to uh, surface drafts about new features to them and collect feedback. I asked them to test drive features uh, at their at uh, on their own projects and and let us know what was working and what wasn't. And it achieved the same very well. Uh, there were there there were well you know this was it was a first for us, but it was also. A really good idea. I don't know if you've watched the talks at ReactConf uh, 2021, but a lot of working group members were actually able to, you know, join us and speak about the features that they had uh, they had contributed to. Yeah, I, I had a chance to look at the ReactConf and the, just as you said, the work group representation there. And just, I feel it's an amazing move towards opening it up the community and having a bit more transparency, more involvement, because it's so easy to get with anything, not just working on a project, but when you work on something all the time, it, it's easy to miss things that are actually important for your end users. Uh, it's easy to focus on your use cases only, but when it actually built for people who are working on the same project outside, let's say Meta, I'm sure it may drive the project forward and makes it better. But Thank you so much for your time today. I, and uh, I forgot to mention that we actually have very different time zones. I'm currently based in the, in the U.S. in the Pacific time zone, <laughs> and uh, for and it's early morning for me, like not so early anymore. But for Rachel, it's really late in the evening. Uh, you're based in the UK, right? It's only seven p.m. here. I am a new dad. It's uh, for me. It's seven p.m. It's like a you know nap time for my son. It's uh, it's the time shifted for me, so it's very late for me. So, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you for your time, and I uh, appreciate all your insight. And thank you so much for having me, Dimitri. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Have a nice rest of the day. You too.